The vision's critical for any group of people, but the, the reality was, although we'd focused a lot on vision, where we're going to go, we realised that we'd not spent enough time looking on about who we, who we want to be. Uh, where you want to go is important, but also who we want to be, because we realised that there are many groups of people or individuals who achieve great things, but who never... Uh, who aren't happy with who they've become at the end of the journey. Anyone have you observed that? Plenty of people achieve great things, individuals and groups, but they're not satisfied. They don't like who they've become at the end of the journey. And so vision's critical where you're going to go, but also uh, culture is important. Who are, you going to, who are you going to be? And so we've been looking at that over the last few uh, uh, weeks, and we realized uh, many years ago that any group of people has to define culture. Every group has a culture, and you either define it or it gets defined for you. <laughs> There's only two options. You define it yourself or it will get defined for you by the loudest voices or just what you've inherited or just, just randomly it will be defined for you. And so we went intentionally to define our culture, and uh, we, we chose five words which really boiled down uh, the, the ideas that God had presented us through, the, through his word, through prophecy, through other things, and they came out uh, as five words which we really are running after and have consistently run after. Uh, we want to be a culture of honor. We want to be a culture of authenticity. We want to be a culture of acceptance, of courage, and generosity. And these are the five things. It's not that there aren't other things, but these five things are the core of who we want to be as a people. And so uh, as we've looked at this over the last few weeks, this morning I really want to look at this whole theme of a culture of authenticity. What does it mean? Some of you will have heard some of this stuff before, and I hope for us that we can go deeper in what it means to live as a culture of authenticity. For others, you've never heard anything on this before or seen anything like it before. And so for you, uh, it's going to be critical to understand what it means. I'm feeling really echoey. Is that, is that reality? Can we do anything with that? Is that, is that just me? It's just me. Okay, fine. I'll keep going. Thank you for being honest. It's really important as we talk about this culture of authenticity. Brilliant. Phil was a live example right there. <laughs> um, so looking at culture of authenticity, and it starts really with this whole reality that the world is full of secrets. Right at the beginning of, the, of, of creation, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, uh, the first thing that happened is it says they realized that they were naked, they were ashamed, and they hid themselves. And, and so mankind has been hiding ever since. We've been hiding ever since. We hide from God and we hide from each other secrets. The world is full of secrets. And some secrets are humorous and a little bit sad. Like, for example, uh, anyone like Star Wars? Yeah, Star Wars, you've seen the movies, C-3PO and R2-D2, the most famous double act probably of all time, actually hated each other. The actors couldn't stand each other and they could never talk to each other outside of when they were on screen together. That's the only time they ever communicated. Otherwise, they didn't. I think it's a bit sad. I kind of, kind of really ruined my view of Star Wars. But that's the reality, a little bit of a secret. Other, other secrets are just secrets that everyone knows is a secret, like the ingredients of KFC chicken coating which has been a secret for 70 years now and is still a secret and is in fact locked behind two feet of concrete in a digital safe and surrounded by surveillance and security guards because they do not want the recipe to get out. Otherwise, we could be all making it at home. It wouldn't be good. And so some things are secrets and other things are just desperately sad secrets. They're, they're shameful secrets that people carry for years. Like the, the guy I prayed with at one time who... Uh, when he was six, walked in on his mother and his uncle having an affair. And he walked in in the middle of their relationship, as you can imagine. The horrific image that he had, and he ran out of the room, not knowing what to do with it. His mother later swore him to secrecy, never to tell his father, which he never did. Not for his mother's sake, but really because he knew it would destroy his father. And he carried, I think I met him when he was in his mid-40s, and he wept like a baby. 
having carried that secret for over 30 years. He'd never told a soul before. Secrets are everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> Powerful, humorous sometimes, very often destructive, shameful, damaging. And the world is full of secrets. And when I was growing up, I lived a life of secrets. I had secrets that I didn't want people to know, secrets I was ashamed of, secrets I thought people would judge me if they knew about. That's all I knew. And then I've begun to discover that there's another way, and it's called walking in light. Walking in the light is a different way. It's a very countercultural way. It's something that's not done uh, very often. There's not many communities that have learned to live this way, but it's the biblical way. We believe that this is how the Bible paints the picture of what the church should be, walking in the light. So I want to look at that together and really root it in one particular passage, which is written by John, who was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. And he writes this. This is the message that we have heard from him, from Jesus, that's who he was referring to, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A few things that stand out to me from that passage. The first is this, there is something to hear. That's how John starts. He says, this is the message we have heard and pass on to you, proclaim to you. We have heard a message he starts with. And it's critical to understand that. We have heard, we've all received a message about Jesus. There's a message that has been proclaimed to us that's come through the generations. This message has gone out. And, and it, what's interesting to me is how we handle that message is important because I remember having grown up going to church sometimes three or four times every Sunday. When I reached the teenage stage, I was laying in bed one night and I suddenly thought to myself, what if it's not true? What if, I've, what if we're just making this up? What if I've just inherited something from my parents that, that I would not have believed had I been brought in another family or another country? What if this thing is not true? Anyone else ever had thoughts like that? And you know what? I made two mistakes. First mistake, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell a soul. I just pushed that thought down because I thought, I go to church. I'm meant to be a Christian. I'm meant to be following Jesus. I, I can't have a thought like that. I push that thought down. But you know what happens when you push it down? It just goes septic. It goes into the darkness. It goes into the hiddenness. And that thought just begins to grow. It begins, and that was the first mistake. I didn't tell anyone about that thought. And the second mistake I made is I didn't study. I didn't realize that there was a whole load of people before me who'd had the same thought, who'd studied it, who'd researched it. I didn't do any study. I just was left with this thought hidden in the darkness that just grew and grew and grew until, as many of you know my story, I became an atheist because of that thought. Fortunately, that's changed now. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. <clears throat> but I can't tell you the whole story. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was research that you could do, that you could study and think about these things. I didn't realize, but I just want to say to us as a community, one thing that's really important is how we handle doubt and people, our own doubt, but the other people when they express doubt is absolutely critical. 
I think this is for all of us. How we handle doubt and creating a community where we can genuinely talk about doubts is absolutely critical. Otherwise, we create a space where those thoughts just get pushed down. They're too shameful to mention. I want the King's Arms to be a place where we can talk about our doubts. We can talk about our questions. We can get them out there. We can discuss and debate them. I mean, and if parents, for those parents here, I know your kids are away. If you've got teenagers, they're away. While they're not here, I just want to say to you, when your kids are teenagers, how you handle their doubts and questions is critical. You've got to create a family, a home, where it's okay to discuss and debate these things and to talk these things through. Because otherwise, I trust, trust me, they will go septic on the inside. And your kids will look for their answers, but they'll look for them outside of the family. I remember one time my uh, uh, daughter just said to me, she said, Dad, I'm just, we just had a you know, story time, snuggle time. She was probably 10 or 11. She said, Dad, I'm having some real doubts. What if it's not true? I've got these real questions. And, I, and, and what if there is no God? I said to her, the first thing I said is, honey, I just want to thank you for your courage because I'm not only your dad but your pastor and I know it must have taken you huge courage to express that doubt. And so I just want to just thank you so much for being so brave to talk about it. Second thing is, you've got three or four, so here's your three or four questions and we went through the three or four questions I said, do you know what, I had those questions and I had a load more and I listed off another five questions. So now between us we had nine questions. I said two things. One is you need to understand that firstly, whatever you decide, mum and I will love you. But now's the time where you have to choose this faith for yourself. We've taught you what we know and we've chosen this way, but we can't choose for you. You've got to choose if you believe this truth, this message. Do you believe it? Because if you do, you've got to choose. And the second thing is what I'd love to do if you'd let me is let's go on a journey together. Let's study together. Let's read some books together. And we started to read some stuff together. She agreed to that. But I said, as we do that, you need to know that the choice is still going to be yours. I'm not going to try and convince you. I'll, what I want you to do is not just hear everything that you're hearing at school and YouTube and all that stuff. I want you to hear the other side of the story. Because I've now subsequently looked at both sides of the story and I've realized that that other stuff I heard was only one side of the story. There's a whole other thing. We don't believe in spite of the evidence. We believe because of the evidence. And so many Christians are worried. If I look, if I lift that lid, I'll, I'll probably lose my faith. No, no, no. I, trust me. If you look, you'll gain strength in your faith. We don't believe in spite of the evidence. We, we believe because of the evidence. And, and I haven't got time to go into it. It's not really the point of the message, but the eyewitness evidence, the evidence from the early church, the evidence just goes on and on and on as you look at our faith. And it was a, it was a turning point in her journey towards faith and discovering Jesus for herself. How we respond to doubts is critical. John says, listen, guys, we've got a message and we're proclaiming it to you. We need to handle that message in, in the right way. Second thing is this, John tells us what that message is. He says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's something to, there's something to hear but there's also someone to know. <laughs> that is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I, when I was growing up, I used to love TV law shows. I just loved law shows. I loved watching the cut and thrust of the debates and, the, and just the legal show. I just, I just loved it. Watching it. Well, anyway, I, was about, I think I was about 20. I got to, invited to be on a jury. Well, not invited. You're kind of forced unless you've got a great excuse. Uh, I got invited to be on a jury. And um, so I was on this jury case for two weeks. And uh, uh, it was fascinating. It was a, it was a um, fraud case where these guys had basically been seven 
seven guys have been printing money, or that was the, uh, the claim. They've been printing money, dollars and pounds, and printed thousands and thousands of pounds of, uh, of money, which you know, seems like a great idea until you get caught. Um, and so they were printing all this money, and then obviously got caught, and they were in court for... for, for and we were there as, a, as the jury, uh, two two weeks of it, listening to this, this case. And at the end of it, we went into a, a room and uh, actually we were there for two, nearly two and a half days discussing. Five of them, it was pretty obvious they were guilty and we got, found them guilty fairly quickly. One of them we thought was innocent and so we decided he was innocent. But there was one that we spent nearly two days wrestling over because the evidence against him was three phone calls that he had made. And we didn't have the contents of the call, just the fact that he'd made these calls to a number. And the police said it was another member of the gang and they said it was definitely proved that he was part of the gang and that he was involved in the whole thing. His story was, I didn't even know these guys. I, d- I dialed a number by mistake. I dialed it a few times by mistake. I didn't even, I nothing to do with these guys. I don't even know these guys. And we wrestled over this thing. We wrestled for days over this thing. And in the end, we decided he was innocent. There just was not enough evidence to convict him. When the, when the verdict was read out, he looked at us and he went, yes, and I knew he was guilty. I could tell. I looked in his eyes and I thought, he was guilty. And in fact, we talked to the police afterwards and they were convinced he was guilty. They had other evidence they weren't allowed to bring. Two things I learned from that. Justice is really boring and sometimes quite frustrating. What happens on a TV show for 40 minutes, when it's over two weeks and you're endlessly going through phone records, is really, really dull and quite frustrating when you get the wrong result at the end for this guy. But the other thing is this, you've you've got to listen to the right story. There are so many stories out there about everything, and learning to listen to the right story is critical. John says, I've got a story, and this is my story. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But there's a story out there that says God is either dead or never existed, or that God is actually probably at his heart, fairly judgmental and vindictive and fairly mean character. The question for us is, which story are you going to listen to? Because it's important for this context of authenticity, because If you genuinely believe in your heart, deep down somewhere, not in the good times, obviously when we're all singing, and that's one thing, but in the dark times, in the hard times, if you don't believe that God is good, then you'll never be able to be open with him. You'll never be able to bring your stuff to him. You'll never be able to share your pain and your frustrations and your doubts and your questions with him because you don't believe deep down that he's good, that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's never lied. He's never made a mistake. He will never apologize for someone. Sometimes I hear Christians and they say, God, I just need to forgive you for this. No, you can never forgive God. He's never done anything wrong. He can never do anything wrong. If you've got to forgive God, we've got an existential crisis. The whole universe is falling apart. He's good. He's always good. He never makes a mistake. He will never apologize. Not because he doesn't want to apologize, because he never has to. He is God. And that's what John says. This is our message. And deep down, we have to get to a place where we understand and know this. Have you met this Jesus who never lies, who is totally pure and totally holy? Have you met him? Have you come to see him as he really is? Have you believed it deep in your heart? Not just on a Sunday morning where it's all looking great and the weather's great outside. No, it's not brilliant. But, you know, not then, but in the dark times. Have you believed this message? Have you met this person? This is what Rufus Mosley, the uh, American philosopher, said. The God we see in Jesus so satisfies us that we fall at his feet in love, reverence, and worship. 
Seeing God in and through Jesus, we know that we have seen the Father, the real God, the only God that has for us a perfect and everlasting appeal. The man we see in him is so full of love, so full of goodness, so full of wisdom, so full of power, control and dominion. Is the only man who can fulfill the innate longings that God has written in the depths of our being. <laughs> have you seen Jesus? And you might say, well, hang on somewhere. I've seen that and I believe that, but I've got some questions. Do you know what? There is an element of mystery. There is an element of mystery, but I don't think we're going to find that God is mysteriously bad. I think we're going to find he's mysteriously good. We're going to find that one day, do you know what? I just didn't get it. I never understood. I think in heaven we will worship at his feet when we see how he's weaved it all together, the dark and the light, such that even the dark became light. I think we will be in awe that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Something to hear, someone to know, and then somewhere to walk. If we say, John says, we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. You know, I bought a car once. I think I might have told you this story. I have a pathological fear of cars, and this is one of the reasons. I bought this car. It was a white Vauxhall Nova. Oh, it was a beauty. And I got it home, and the next morning, I uh, bought it late one night. Next morning, it was on the drive. I looked out the window, and I thought... That's a spot of rust, I see. And I, and I ran down, and I tell you, I, and that car was basically rust held together with paint. Someone had just sprayed, the guy had just sprayed over the rust. I mean, and no, no one in their right mind, apart from me, would have bought that car. It was so rusty. Two things I learned. One is, never buy a car in the dark. <laughs> I know it should be obvious, but it wasn't to me. But, but if you ever, you know, take some advice from someone who's pathologically opposed to buying cars. Never buy a car in the dark because you can't see. The second thing is this. It's amazing what you can cover up in the dark. It's amazing what gets covered up in the dark. And John's calling on us to say, listen, you can't walk in the darkness and have fellowship with God. Because he is in the light. And the darkness in the context of the passage as we look elsewhere is clearly sin. What he's saying is you can't walk in sin. And, and John, interestingly, was, he was of uh, James and John who was known as the son, the, Jesus called him the, them the sons of thunder. Which tells you something about an anger management problem, I suggest. <laughs> These guys had an anger management problem. They sinned. <laughs> And yet John says something about Jesus drew us not to run away from the light, like a harsh, uncaring light, but this light drew us towards the light. This light drew us to be changed by the light. We moved away from the direction we were going, walking in the darkness, and we turned and we began to walk in the light. And it's not like John didn't sin again. As he says in the passage, don't say that we haven't got any sin, we're killing ourselves. It's not like he didn't sin again, but it's about the trajectory. It's about which direction are you walking are you walking deeper and deeper into sin or are you turning around? Are you, are you looking in your soul and trying to get it out of yourself? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking towards the light? Because 
That's the nature of sin. It will just keep growing if we don't walk in the other opposite direction. And many of you know my story of um, uh, stealing from the company that I worked for, and it's part of my journey, which I won't bore you with. But many of you won't know the beginning of that story started when I was about six years old. And I was in class, and someone had brought in some Doctor Who cards. And I really wanted those cards. And I didn't have any cards that had Doctor Who on them. And so it was show and tell. Someone had brought them in to show the teacher, and they were on the teacher's desk after show and tell. And so when I went to the teacher, I quietly slipped them off the table and put them in my pocket. It's not funny. (laughs) I slipped them in my pocket, six years old. And at the end of the day, the teacher made us wait for ages for someone to confess. But I thought, I'm in too deep now. I'm in too deep. I'm in too deep. No way I'm confessing. And so I took them home. Mum and Dad said, where'd you get those from? I found them. And I thought got away with it. Ever thought that when you've done something wrong? Got away with it? What I realize now is it's the worst thing that could possibly have happened. When you think to yourself, got away with it, think to yourself immediately after, that's the worst thing that could have happened. That's the worst thing that could have happened. Because when you get away with it, it sows a seed. It sows a seed that that activity, that behavior works for you. And so that was six, and then fast forward about till I was about ten, and I wanted some other thing that I wanted, and I didn't have enough money, didn't want to wait for the birthday, and then as I was putting my coat away, I felt a jingle in my dad's pocket, and I thought, what's that? Oh, there's a lot of change in his pocket. Gosh, there's a lot of change there. I wonder if he'll miss any of that change. I don't think he will. I'll take some, and then I'll take a bit more, and then I'll take a bit more. Whew, got away with it. You never get away with it. <laughs> Getting away with it is the opposite to getting away with it because it sows another seed and another seed which ultimately left me stealing from the company that I worked for. And it wasn't by the grace of God that he invaded my life and saved me from all of that. Otherwise, who knows where I would have ended up. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? Because we all have a choice, even today, don't we, when those seeds go in. Do I get away with it? Oh, no, actually, I need to. Come on. I don't want to live that life anymore. I need to turn around. I need to walk away from that. What does it look like for you? What do you need to turn away from? And it's still life today. Even the other day, I was uh, driving with David Devonish, who oversees the group of churches we're with, and I said something which was true, but as I said it, I knew, I think he's got the opposite impression. Everyone ever, you can tell the truth and lie at the same time. Anyone else ever mastered that? It's genius. You can tell the truth and have your conscience clean, but lie at the same time. And I, I didn't intentionally do that, but I realized after I'd done it, that's exactly what I'd done, that he had the opposite impression to what was true, even though I'd spoken the truth. And as we were going into the meeting, I thought, oh, it's only a little thing. It doesn't affect him anyway. It's not going to bother him, you know. But then something in my spirit said, you know where this is going. <laughs> so I said, actually, Dale, I just need to tell you, actually, when I, and I think you got this impression. He said, yeah, said, that isn't the truth. This is, the, this is, the, this is what's actually true. And I, I just, because, you know, I know where this goes. You can either walk in the darkness or you can walk in the light. There is no gray. <laughs> There is no gray. It's darkness or light. You get to choose, and each one of us get a daily choice of what direction are you heading in. Sooner or later, you've got to turn around, or you're just going to keep heading in that same direction. What is it for you? Is it greed? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it dishonesty of any kind? Is it sexual sin? What is it for you? Which direction are you headed in? Because the, the point of John's message is if we want fellowship with God, you can turn around at any point. You can turn around at any point and come back to him. You can walk in the light. That's what John is calling us to. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. 
And that's what happened to me in my story one night. I just, got all, I just couldn't live with the pressure anymore, and I told my parents the whole story. And that began the journey for me of living and walking in the light, of living authenticity. And I realized the tremendous power of having a clean soul, of a few people knowing everything about you. Because the lie I'd believed up to that point is, if I tell the truth, people won't love me. But I I realized in that moment that unless you tell the truth, people can't love you because you can't love a mask. If I tell the truth, people won't love me. Unless you tell the truth, people can't love you. There's no one real there to love. The mask that you put up, they can't love. They're not even getting through to you. And you worry why you don't feel connected with people, why even your friends don't feel like real friends. This is why. Because they don't really know you. They don't really know the real you. And it's scary. It's scary to get out there. It's scary to put yourself out there. And you risk. You risk stuff. You risk it not being reciprocated. A friend of mine who uh, is from the Middle East, he, he was saying to me, Simon, before I was a Christian, I would never have told my stuff because I knew that they would use it against me. That's the big fear, isn't it? But what about the opposite? What about a community where we don't use it against each other? What about a community where we're open and honest with each other about the deepest stuff? And, and some people say, well, Simon, you're honest from the, from the front. Why do you do that? The reason I do that is not so that you can all get up here. I mean, it would make for very long Sundays for one and, and tell your stuff. No, it's not for that reason. It's so that you have the courage in your twos and threes to tell someone everything, to create a culture, to create a culture. Because it's not just about a few people from the plat- platform being honest and thinking, oh, don't we have an honest church? No, no, that's not a culture of authenticity. A culture of authenticity is in twos and threes. We all have someone who knows everything and still loves us and still accepts us and still helps us work it through. And if it's shameful stuff that needs putting right, they help us put it right and help us work it through. That's a culture of authenticity. It's time to come to light. It's time to stop spraying white paint over the rust and hoping that you get away with it. Because as the lights go up, and do you know what's happening in the nations? The lights are going up, aren't they? And we're seeing people fall as secrets from decades ago are coming out into the light. It's all coming out from the light. Jesus said, what you did in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. That's a scary thought, unless you've told it all already. Then you've got nothing to hide, nothing to fear. What about a church that looks like that? Where when Jesus says, what you've done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops, and all of us are like, all right. All right, I've told everyone. There's nothing left to tell. Wow. What would it look like to be in that place? And I know, I know, because I've sweated and I've, I've been desperately fearful as I've sat with a friend and told them the stuff that was going on in my life. But the power of it. The relief of it to set you free. And you know what? It's not just the negative stuff. You know, which of us as kids sung the song, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Anyone sing that song? Remember? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And you kind of warbled that out. How about this? Was it true? Have you let it shine? Have you let your little light shine? Or have you hidden it because you want to conform? because you don't want to stand out, because you're afraid of rejection, because you don't want to look different. Have you let your little light shine in the marketplace? Have you let little light shine in the church? Have you let your little light shine? Or have you hidden your little light? Because you're afraid of what people would say and that people wouldn't accept you and that your gift didn't quite fit. Have you let your little light shine? Have you been honest? Could you honestly look at that six-year-old self, yourself, six years old, and say, 
I've done what I said I was going to do. It wasn't just an empty song to me. What does it look like for you to live out who God's called you to be? What does it look like for you to learn to say no? I mean, the Lord spoke to me as I was preparing this and said, some people just need to... Their next step of authenticity is to learn to say no. How does that sound? Some of you just say yes, even though whenever, you know, someone says, do you want to do this? And you say, on the, on the outside, you say yes. On the inside, you're thinking, I'd rather boil my head in oil than do that. But you, you never admit it. You'd, you'd never say that. You just say, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. What would it look like to be a culture of authenticity where you could just securely, without defending, just say, do you know what? I really, I don't, it's not because I don't love it. I just don't want to do that right now. Is that okay? <laughs> well, that, well, how'd that feel? Some of you, your homework is to go home and practice saying no. <gasps> the people around you are going to be like, what? You never say no. Well, <laughs> not in a disagreeable way. We can disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> we can say no without being disagreeable. How would it feel to be empowered and authentic enough to just say no? I don't actually want to do that. And people will push sometimes, and it's learning to actually, I really, let's talk about what, because I'm feeling kind of pushed into this right now. That transforms cultures, because it means that controlling people can't control anymore. Some of us, that's our next step. Some of us, it's to stop being a chameleon. Do you ever morph yourself into the person that you think the person you're talking to wants you to be? Do you ever change to be the person that you think they want you to be or give the response that you think they think you... I mean, it gets so confusing. <laughs> and sometimes you end up thinking that they want you to say something and saying it, and they're like, oh, no, they, they, didn't, they clearly did not want you to say the thing that you thought anyone got into that kind of a mess. And when you realise, no, I only said it not because I think that, but because I thought you wanted me to think that and say that. Oh, my gosh, what about stopping all of that? The chameleon and just... Be the person that you are and take, put it out there. And if they reject you, deal with that. Deal with the issues of is that their issue or is that your issue? Do you need to change or do they need to change? That is a culture that transforms people's lives. It's interesting. There's a, a company called McKinsey's and they're, in their contracts they have an obligation to dissent. An obligation to dissent, which basically means if you're in our meetings and you disagree, you have an obligation to say so. Why else are you here? <laughs> you are contractually obligated to dissent. Not in a disagreeable way, not when we've gone public on the decision, but before that point, you have an obligation to say you disagree. Not in the water cooler after the meeting, not once it's been announced publicly, no, before that point. If you disagree, once that's happened, then we get on board together. We decided together, but before that, we disagree. <laughs> wow. How would our families look different if we had an obligation to dissent? How would our teams look different? How would your business look different if there was an obligation to dissent? That we created a culture where we can disagree without being disagreeable, where we can love each other through the process. John says, if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. When we're honest with each other and with God, there is power to transform us. Jesus' blood, which paid the price for every secret, every shameful thing you've ever done, said, thought, or potentially thought, he has paid the price to wash you clean. And when you bring it into the light, it does exactly that. You get cleansed. And what it does as well 
is when you bring your stuff out there, it creates a culture, a community where other people can come. Those who are sex-obsessed, those who are broken through the damage that's been done to them sexually, those who are uh, greedy, those who uh, are haters and are hated in return, those, those from every dysfunction of society, when they come to church, instead of finding a squeaky clean bunch of masks, they find real people who've been transformed by the power of Jesus. And when they hear our stories, they get the honesty to tell their stories and they get to experience the blood of Jesus. That's the culture we want to build. Have you got those people? And I just particularly, I think, ladies, you're better at this than us guys, but particularly to the men, there is an epidemic of loneliness in our society, and it's affecting everybody, but it's particularly affecting men. And I really want to urge you guys, what's it like in your friendship groups? Is it just about cars and sport, or do you go deeper? Do you go deeper than that? With just two or three or three or four, do you go deeper than that? I haven't got friends like that. Then be a friend like that. Be a friend like that. You get friends like that by being a friend like that. I would love them, every man who's part of the King's Island, and every woman as well, but particularly focus on the men right now because I think this is a real stronghold for us to get to the place where we haven't got to put up the brave, strong, I've got it all together mask where we can be honest with one another. I remember sitting in a men's group and the most popular guy that I knew, he was the life and soul of the party, everyone loved him, he had friends coming out of his ears. He opened up, not literally, obviously that'd be awkward, but he opened up and he said this, I don't feel like I've got a friend in the world. You never know what's going on behind the mask. I don't feel like I've got a friend in the world, he said. And as he said that, that night I phoned him and said, I'll be your friend. That was risky. He might have said no. (laughs) But we became friends and are still to this day. He was one of my closest friends. Because of two people who took a risk. He took a risk and I took a risk. Let's build a culture like this, guys. Let's make a place that looks like this. Where those broken from every dysfunction, those hiding, those shame-filled, can come and find the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Let's make a place where we can have genuine fellowship, where we're not bumping into each other's masks, where we're really meeting real people, warts and all where we're celebrating and helping each other to lift up our strengths because we know what those strengths are, where we're looking for each other's differences rather than to push us apart, to pull us together, where we're finding a body that is made up of very different people who all feel like they fit because they're different, not in spite of their differences. Let's find a place and build a place that has a real genuine culture of authenticity. Let's come into the light. What is it for you? What is that next step for you? Is it learning to say no? Is it stripping back from the chameleon? Is it getting honest with someone for the first time and saying, let me just tell you my whole story? You know what I've seen mask as authenticity sometimes? People who tell different people little bits of the story. Maybe if you've done that, you say, oh yeah, people know my story. Does one person know all of your story? <laughs> Maybe sit down with someone and realize, you realize, because you can hide behind that. I've seen someone do it. I've seen someone come out of ministry because of that. They told a number of different people bits of the story. Everyone had the whole picture, but no one person had that. If someone had had the whole picture, one person, they would have saved that person from falling out of ministry. What does it look like to sit down with one person and say, let me just tell you, make sure you know the whole story. Power of authenticity. Let's take a moment to pray.